Well, hello, my name is O.J. Shabazz, and I am privileged to be the minister, that is to say the servant, to the Harlem Church of Christ in New York City, New York. We meet on the corner of 127th and Lenox Avenue in the historic borough of Harlem, New York City. I want to express my sincere gratitude and my appreciation to all of you for finding your way to this uh, Facebook Live series. This is the second installment uh, in the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God, fact or fiction. I want to assert uh, a proposition to you, and that is, uh, it is highly difficult uh, and time-consuming to chase the many, uh, the answering of the many alleged errors and contradictions that uh, are postured against the Holy Bible as the Word of God. So then I've elected to not do that, but to cut to the core of this, this kind of study. And that is, if one truly has a biblical understanding, an accurate and truthful understanding of the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God, and therein one places their faith, their hope, and their trust, and their confidence in the fact that God, through verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration, gave us the Word of God, then we do not have the propensity to believe that the Bible is filled with errors or contradictions. In fact, there are no errors or contradictions in the Word of God. There may be perceived difficulties, but may I assert the position that a difficulty is something vastly different than that of uh, an error or a contradiction. I would really like to spend some time going back and reviewing some critical paradigms of thinking and a few approaches that I provided to you for uh, following me in this study. Yet the brevity of time will certainly not allow me to go back and say all I would like to reassert from that first study. May I suggest that in the leisure of your time, uh, okay, this says turn your phone, preacher. All right, so I'm going to shut this down and start all over again, so I turn my phone. Okay, how was that? This animal is so difficult for me, uh, Lillian and Montreal, to... Am I right side up now? All right, I got a thumbs up, which means I am perceived to be right side up. So I want to apologize. I've indicated in my first uh, Facebook Live video that this genre is entirely new to me. So let me digress and, and start again. I would very much like to uh, go back and revisit some critical paradigms and some tools of thinking provided in the first video. Let me just suggest that you go back to the first li Facebook Live message and review it, and you will discover what I believe are some critical tools to help uh, as we probe this very vast subject the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God, fact or fiction. I do, however, want to reassert um, a definitional perspective of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. 
I would like to ask you to view revelation as what God did. God revealed his word, his way, and his will. Inspiration is how God revealed his word, his will, and his way. And illumination then is the why God did what and how. Illumination is the notion of providing enlightenment or understanding or knowledge in regard to that which God has revealed through inspiration. I would like to go back and also uh, remind you that I pointed out that as to revelation, God revealed uh, his will, his way, and his word through uh, three or uh, four approaches. One, there was uh, through dreams, two, through visions, three, orally or verbally, and then fourth of all, that which was written. By that methodology, God has revealed his word, his way, and his will. Inspiration is the vehicle by which God provides revelation. And I talked about the theories, uh, and there are many theories of, of inspiration. Nonetheless, I listed the four most prominent. I talked about neo-orthodoxy view of inspiration, which uh, in essence uh, reports that the word of God is not inspired at all. Uh, I talked about the mechanical dictation uh, view of inspiration, uh, wherein man uh, believes that God so controlled what was said and written by the man that it was void of their personality and style of writing and, and etc. There is also the notion of partial inspiration, wherein there are those who believe that only segments and parts of what we read in the Bible has been inspired as a result of God's revelation. And then the fourth of which the Bible teaches, and the fourth position is the one uh, of which I am uh, making assertion, and that is verbal plenary inerrant inspiration. By verbal, I mean God spake. By plenary, I mean it is all authoritative. By inerrant, I mean it is without error or contradiction. And by theonustia, or that which is theonustic, which is the word translated in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the word inspiration, theonustia, literally means that which God breathed. So I unapologetically affirm that the Bible is the verbal, plenary, uh, inerrant inspiration of Jehovah God. I began by giving you some internal claims for inspiration, and ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I use this approach based on this premise. If individuals are privileged to use the Bible in an effort to discredit inspiration, revelation, and our illumination, then certainly one may use the same Bible to affirm the verbal, plenary, uh, inerrant inspiration of Jehovah God. If not, why not? So I began with internal uh, evidence, and I gave you one from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 36, and we did a contextual analysis of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we talked about the theonustia uh, of God. God breathed words uh, through inspiration, and therefore what we read in the entirety of canon is theonistic. Uh, in other words, it, the, theonustia describes how God revealed his word. He did so by inspiration. 
And so the internal claims of uh, Jeremiah 36 and from the old canon and then the reference to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 is a reference to the New Testament. Let me uh, proceed by advancing uh, further claims of, or that is internal claims of inspiration. The errancy, inerrancy of the word of God is guarded and protected by the vehicle of inspiration. The process, the very process by which God uh, pro uh, protected and uh, provided the integrity of his word is called inspiration. That's how God protects the integrity of his word so that it is without error or contradiction. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 2, permit me to point up yet another of a plethora of other references throughout the Old Testament where there is an internal claim, where God claims through the scriptures that it is verbally uh, inspired and inerrant. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 2, uh, the scriptures read, and I take this quotation from the King James translation, Now there be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, The man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. This is one of the many affirmations from the old canon where there is an internal claim for inspiration. David said that the Lord spake by me and his words was in my mouth. In the New Testament, and I believe I referenced this context on the first uh, Facebook Live uh, video, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13 and 14. Herein Paul says, which things also we speak. Not in words of man's wisdom, but in words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Paul begins earlier by saying, I have not seen, nor have ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man those things which God hath prepared for those who love them, but have revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the spirit of man, save the spirit of man that is in him? And then he goes on in verses 13 to 14 to advance the notion that the Holy Spirit, by the direction of God the Father, gave them words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I also would point up to you to not run over quickly verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of God. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that there are many people who have drank what I call the proverbial Kool-Aid or the proverbial punch, and by that I mean they, are, they have drank uh, the punch and Kool-Aid, as it were, of humanism. Often, if you listen to individuals who raise alleged contradictions and alleged errors of the scriptures and raise indictments that are antithetical to Christology and theology, Christology being the, the doctrine of the Messiah and theology being the study of the systems of the Christian faith, you will find that they always dismiss the divine component. It is a very naturalistic approach filled with the Kool-Aid uh, that comes from uh, a, a philosophy 
and uh, a tad bit of skepticism and Gnosticism and uh, 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 atheism and, and these other isms, all of which through very modernistic, postmodernism, secular humanistic kind of thinking, always seeks to dismiss the, 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 the uh, divine component that is ever-present and essential to understanding the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, if you listen to many of these would-be questions, or at least those which are framed as though they are questioned, question, yet they are pregnant with indictment and inference, you will discover that it always dismisses the divine component, and therefore their conclusion is, it does not make sense to me, you know, come on, we can ration and reason better than that, uh, and that's because their approach is very uh, naturalistic, uh, it is a very humanistic approach to try to interpret um, the most complex mind ever revealed to humanity, which is the mind of Jehovah God. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that the natural man does not understand or it does not make sense to him uh, because uh, he is certainly not uh, including the divine component that is essential to understanding the revelation, inspiration, and the illumination of the word of God. I want to further uh, talk about the notion of illumination because I've spoken explicitly about revelation and inspiration, but what then is meant by illumination? Remember, revelation, what God did, inspiration, how God did it, and illumination is why God did it. I further want to go back and reassert a premise that I advanced in our first uh, study together, and that is you always want a definitional perspective and definitions when it comes to words, words are context sensitive. Uh, you always want to define a word in the context in which it is used or asserted. Second of all, you always want to look to God whenever possible for a definitional perspective. P permit me to advance the notion that God is the best definer of himself. And the words uh, with which uh, God has uh, revealed his way and his will, uh, the definitions of those words need to be provided whenever possible by God. The word illuminate, uh, in fact, is used in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. The Hebrew writer there uses the Greek word fotidzu, and the word fotidzu by definition means to give light, to instruct, to inform, to teach or to give understanding. Again, fotidzu or illuminate or to illumination or illumination just basically and fundamentally means to give light, to instruct, to inform, to teach, to give instruction. As a result, when one places the definitional perspective over against uh, the backdrop of, of the subject of illumination, then what God did, Revelation, how God did it, Inspiration is for our teaching, understanding, instruction, and information. Remember, I talked to you about the law of divine economy. And in the context in which I advance the law of divine economy, I'm saying that even a cursory view of the canon, both old and new, reveals the fact that God never does something for nothing. Everything God does, God does with great specificity, with purpose, with intent. He does not possess the ability 
to be wasteful. So that illumination was given uh, um, as a result of God's desire to give us understanding, teaching, instruction, and information. So I want you to have a definitional perspective of illumination. And there are many, many instances, more instances than uh, I would have time to convey, where the New Testament Bible time and again uh, affirms the note, the, 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 the indication uh, um, that God uh, is illuminating what he revealed through inspiration. For instance, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 18 to 22, and by 1, 18 to uh, 21, rather, I mean chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, listen to the Apostle Paul as it is reported in the King James translation. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Notice Paul's affirmation is that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. That is, ladies and gentlemen, the notion of illumination. God's revelation and inspiration is for our understanding or teaching or information. Yet on another occasion in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24 and verse 15, Luke simply says in reference to the message of Jesus on that occasion, he says, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And then Luke continues to give um, uh, exposure uh, to what Jesus taught on that occasion. And I might an inspired account of what uh, Jesus taught on that occasion. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So the Bible is just replete. And when I say replete, I simply mean it is filled with an abundance of affirmations about uh, the doctrine of illumination. And I need you, and I need to be able to convey to you that as you uh, seek to grasp this very brass subject, uh, uh, or rather a broad subject, that you understand revelation, what God did, uh, inspiration, how God did it, all of that was designed to provide for mortal mankind God's illumination. I've already cited the Hebrews 10.32 text, but permit me to read it to you. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, the writer of the Hebrew letter says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of affliction. That is the very word fotidzu. And fotidzu means again, by definition, to give light, to instruct, to inform, to teach, or to give or provide instruction. So that's your definitional perspective of illumination. Now, let's put the meal pieces together. Let's, let's put the pieces together. Let's connect the dots. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the word of God. Is it fact or is it fiction? Did God reveal? Did God use inspiration? Did God, in fact, do it for our understanding, information, and teaching? And I'm suggesting to you, based on internal evidence found in canon 
And I've asked you to look at the Bible, understanding our traditional vision, divisions of old canon, new canon, that you look at it as one Biblos or one book, 66 books that make one canon or one book, and that one book has been breathed by God, inspired with revelation, inspiration for our understanding and our instruction. Now, for many, many years, there have been an untold number of men, some of which are lay people, some of which are students of sacred writing, many of which are, are reported scholars, scholars of textual criticism, uh, scholars of, of the biblical text, uh, scholars of Hebrew, of Greek, of Aramaic, and etc., have made much to do about the notion of textual transmission. And I want to spend a few moments today visiting with you a cursory view and a notion of textual transmission. In other words, the quibble that is often made against the Bible is how can we trust the Bible as the word of God today because it is the product of copies of copies of copies of copies that have been copied. That many men advance as a very humanistic uh, indictment against the verbal, plenary, and errant inspiration of God. I want to suggest to you that the indictment of textual transmission or of a textual translation is no justifiable indictment against the credibility of the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of God whatsoever. And in just a moment, I'm going to offer you a premise. I'm going to offer you an argument uh, through which uh, you may view this subject of textual transmission or textual translations. Now, let me permit, permit me to slow down and to make one, what is in my mind, critical uh, separation. I would very much like to come along in yet another study and address the notion of English translations from the classical Kone Greek, the Chaldean Hebrew, the Aramaic, etc. Uh, what we traditionally call in our Western culture versions of the English Old and New Testament Bible. When I speak today to the subject of uh, textual transmission and textual translation, I'm now speaking about the transmission processes through which we take the Word of God from manuscripts and we uh, convert it, if I may use such a term, or we transition it into yet another language. Now, that's often offered as a line of argumentation with this rationale. Well, Brother Shabazz, we have none of the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts are referenced or called by scholars autographs. And the skeptics and those who are antithetical to the notion that the Bible is the verbal plenary inspiration, inerrant inspiration of the word of God says it cannot be the word of God because of the human component that is involved in a copy of a copy of a copy. And so it is consequently filled with error and contradictions 
and uh, miscopies. And so this product that we have cannot be the word of God. I want to suggest to you that God affirms everything but that. And I'm also going to affirm to you that God himself sanctioned the notion of uh, transmission, textual transmission, and textual translations. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is absolutely, positively, undeniably true that the original autographs, which uh, collectively came to be called the Bible, have faded into oblivion a long time ago. There is not a single one that remains, and I believe perhaps for good reason. I believe with all, uh, with all of my uh, mental capacity that God is a God of divine economy, that he never does something for nothing. Had God so desired through miraculous measure to preserve the original autograph, certainly God would have done that. I truly, however, believe that if man had those original autographs today, that he may very well fall victim to worshiping and idolizing those autographs equally as much, if not more, than we worship and idolize the God of the sacred writings. God would not that we worship the sacred writings. We worship the gods about whom the, worship, the, the uh, sacred writings teach. And so it's of no consequences, no matter uh, that we do not have the original autographs. And in my mind, that's more of a quibble and not a justifiable and credible indictment against the verbal plenary and errant inspiration of the word of God. And the fact that the book that we have today is undeniably and unquestionably the word of God. Uh, what, what, what we do have uh, today is over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. And people often negate to mention that there are some, in addition, 10,000 Latin manuscripts. People often, in addition, overlook or do not mention the fact that in addition to the 5,800 Greek manuscripts in, in, in fragments or uh, in larger pieces, or the some 10,000 uh, manuscripts we have in the Latin language, there are a number of uh, various uh, number of other languages. Uh, scholars say somewhere around 9,300 manuscripts, some of which are written in Syratic language, in uh, Slavic, uh, 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 Gothic language, in, in Coptic language, in uh, Armenian language, uh, and a number of other languages that total somewhere around 9,300. 5,800 in the Greek, 10,000 in the Latin, 9,300 in various other languages, all of which when pulled together, analyzed and scrutinized one against another as to view whether the integrity uh, of God's word has been so guarded and so protected that it continues to be inerrant, that it continues to be without error or without contradiction. So I want to offer you a proposition. Uh, in other words, a view uh, of, of, of textual transmission and, and translation from a biblical perspective. What does God seem to manifest about this notion of transmission, and is that a cause for concern? I want to advance the notion that God himself acknowledges the inerrancy of textual transmission from the original autographs to others himself. Um, in antiquity, you have a group of 70 men who come together 
and they translate from a dead language the Chaldean Hebrew to the classical Koine Greek, and the result is a document called the Septuagint, or the LXX, and LXX is descriptive of the designation 70, and 70 came from the 70 ripest scholars of that time who sat down and in a very meticulous way uh, translated from the dead language of Chaldean Hebrew into the classical Kone Greek. Here again, it is evident that uh, the God of our salvation is involved in the overall process of revelation, inspiration, and illumination, even in the consideration of textual transmission, because God spake those words in three different languages. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible truly is the most fascinating book on the planet. Uh, it took God 1,500 years to reveal the entirety of his word, uh, and over a period of 1,500 years, we have a time of intertestament, or what is called uh, a, a time where God does not communicate with man, a period of 400 years. Uh, traditionally, we define those 400 years between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the old canon, and the gospel according to Matthew, which is the beginning of the new canon. And there is a period of 400 years between the two where there is absolutely no communication from God whatsoever. Notwithstanding, God himself acknowledges the inerrancy of textual transmission from the original autographs to the Septuagint or the LXX in this way. I want to point up to you the fact that there are over 340 quotations recorded in the scriptures that were taken not from the Hebrew text, but from the Septuagint. Let me argue a case here. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, and while you're finding 2 Timothy 1.5, Put your pinky finger on 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice, if you will, Paul says to this young evangelist, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. Keep that text in mind. Let's also pull in in the same book, same context of uh, contextual of uh, subject consideration. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which is able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the point that I want to make, and, and, and individuals that have advanced the idea that it's, it's contrary to the spirit of those who are in the Church of Christ to ask questions, which is absolutely ludicrous, um, I, I need to do some probing, and I need to answer uh, some questions. Um, from what was Lois and Eunice taught? They were taught from some vehicle which produced in them faith, and that faith they exposed and taught and indoctrinated Timothy. And I'm going to suggest to you that in that day, in that time, in that culture, that the documents or the manuscripts of the old canon from which they were taught to develop faith was the Septuagint. 
And the Septuagint was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. In addition to that, in that culture, in that civilization, in that time, in that region of the world, faithful Jews always attended the synagogue. Uh, scholars say that there were more than 400 synagogues just in Jerusalem alone. Now, to enjoy a moment of integrity, I'm mindful of the fact that there was no synagogue in the city of Lystria where uh, Eunice and Lois and Timothy live, uh, Acts 16.1. However, 21 miles up the road, there is a synagogue in Iconium. And any faithful Jew in that culture was dutiful and careful to attend services in the synagogue, and each synagogue would have a copy of uh, Old Testament canon, and that copy was more often than not the Septuagint, which was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Yet, what is referenced here is that there is no shine away from calling sacred writings, the Septuagint, the quotations that come from it, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, sacred writings that could, in fact, uh, make Timothy wise unto salvation. If it could make Timothy wise unto salvation, then it had credibility. It was a manifestation of the providential protection of God, even in processes of transmission or translation, when there is the presence of a copy that is a copy that is a copy of a copy. That's absolutely no justifiable or credible indictment against the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of God, whose product is the Bible. And so uh, Paul, being guided by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being directed by the God of heaven, leads Paul to reference those who established their faith as a result of being taught from a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and all of those respective synagogues had their copies, and those copies were the Septuagint or from the LXX. I, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the integrity and the inerrancy of those narratives were so preserved that Paul could refer to the teachings that formulated Lois and Eunice and Timothy's uh, faith as that which could save them, that which would make them wise unto salvation or spiritual deliverance. Again, I would advance the notion that some 340 places throughout the scriptures, there are citations that are taken from the LXX or the Septuagint and not from the Chaldean Hebrew text. Now, these are dead languages, the Hebrew, uh, the, the, the Chaldean Hebrew. What is a dead language? A dead language is a language that people who populate that culture, those geographics, no longer speak or write. 
in that context, it becomes a dead language. Subsequently, the meanings of those words never change because the language is no longer spoken or written, subsequently subject to change. And so God, through his infinite wisdom, uses the Chaldean Hebrew. And because the Chaldean Hebrew is no longer a spoken and written predominant language of their culture, the 70 scholars and translators take the Chaldean Hebrew and they translate it or make a transition into classical Kone Greek, the predominant language and writing of the then known people. Yet, I continue to highlight uh, this very unsubstantiated quibble, forgive me, I perspire even when I talk too much, uh, the unsubstantiated allegation and quibble that we cannot trust the word of God because it is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Well, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You can discredit uh, the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of the word of God when and only when you attempt to dismiss the divine component. And the divine component is inspiration. And through inspiration and the providence of God, God historically, and I say historically because the Bible is the greatest historical document, the most accurate historical document on the entirety of the planet Earth. God manifest his continued inerrancy of those narratives, demonstrate that the narratives are providentially preserved, even though there are no uh, original autographs, that the quotations that come from a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, God acknowledges as sacred writings, uh, as scripture uh, that is able to make us wise unto salvation. Um, the Jews most frequently used this version of the Old Testament canon in the early church. And, and so the notion that, or the quibble, uh, not sure I even want to give it the credibility of calling it an argument, that there is some indictment against the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of the word of God in the Bible just cannot be the, the God word of God because of the human component and that man is going to make copyist errors and mistakes and provide misinformation. And then there are those who theological prejudice and through cultural prejudice would seek to alter and change. Well, I, I see a precedent. I'm not saying this is the only precedent. This is a foundation upon which I'm going to continue to build as we matriculate our way down through the tunnel of time. My, uh, my concerted point my overall point, my, my, my specific point is that God himself sanctions transmission and translation by acknowledging the writings of the Septuagint, which was the product of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, which makes me want to say in my mind in these days and times, then what are you talking about? Why should I abandon my faith, my hope, my trust, and my confidence in the Bible as the Word of God? And permit me to be clear, the Bible does not contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It is without error. It is without 
contradiction. It is, in fact, the verbal plenary inerrant word of God. Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. He quoted from the Septuagint in Mark 7, 6, and 7. He quoted from the Septuagint in Isaiah uh, uh, 59, uh, uh, the, he quoted Isaiah 59, 23. Uh, Jesus quoted uh, and referenced the writings of the Septuagint or text found in the Septuagint in Matthew 22, 32. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, and the Bible is replete. Again, I advance the notion that there are more than 340 places where there are citations from the Septuagint that are found in the Bible. The conclusion of the matter is that the notion that people's faith are being indicted, their hope and trust and confidence should not be placed in the Bible because all you folk have is a copy of a copy of a copy is a quibble. It is a quibble and it is not a sustainable, justifiable uh, indictment and true or truth or claim that can be leveled against the word of Almighty God. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is right. The Bible is the word of God. One may place their hope, their faith, their trust, and their confidence in it because it is. It does not contain. It fact, in fact, is the verbal, plenary, inerrant word of God. It is verbal. God theonustia. God breathed. He, he, it is verbal. He spake it. Uh, it is plenary, all authoritative. It is inerrant without error or contradiction. And if one goes back to an accurate understanding of the premise of inspiration, one understands immediately that when one levels an alleged, and by the way, by definition, the word alleged means unproven or unsubstantiated. When one alleges a contradiction or error, in the scriptures, I understand that the Bible does not contradict itself. It does not have errors. It is a difficulty. And because it is a difficulty, it sends me probing and digging and researching and studying so as to better understand. Even if I have to take what is an ambiguous text of scripture. In other words, by ambiguous, I mean one that's not clear. One from which... Uh, I cannot gain for me a clear understanding, then I'm going to find an instructive parallel. An instructive parallel is yet another passage of scripture that speaks to the same topic or subject, yet it is clear to help me understand the difficulty involved in the ambiguous uh, text of scripture. One that has confused me one, I don't, it's a difficulty, ladies and gentlemen, and when we're dealing with the mind of God, it is not inconceivable that while studying the greatest book on earth, that you're going to run into difficulties. The Apostle Peter said of the Apostle Paul that in his epistles, he spake many, hard, many things hard to be understood. He advances the notion that there are many difficulties. Again, I don't want to overstress this, but I want to assert to you that the notion of difficulties radically and vastly different from an error or a contradiction. Study, 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 study. And, and, and while I descend to a conclusion, the indictment 
that this is all too complex and common for the simple man uh, or for what we call the layperson, that the layperson uh, cannot understand all of this. I would say to the layperson, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly divide the word of truth. I would say, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Jesus said, these are they that testify of me. I would say to you, probe and dig and research and study and understand that you are dealing with the mind of God and not a man-made novel, not a comic book. This is not the Marvel series. You know, this is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that evolved out of Yukonda. This is not something that is the byproduct of humanistic ingenuity and wisdom. You are, in fact, dealing with the mind of God Almighty himself, and one must dig, probe, research, and study. Now, let me remind you, I do not want to take the time to go back and revisit many of things, many of the things that I've advanced to you in the previous subject, except to remind you, uh, that I've advanced the notion that we should not only study internal evidences, but external evidences as well. I've already suggested to you, don't be afraid to go back and look at uh, the early church fathers, to look at uh, the apostolic fathers. I gave you the dates of about the times they started writing the end uh, of their writings. Uh, don't be afraid to look at the works of the Nicene fathers and the post-Nicene fathers um, and, and not to establish faith, but to affirm further what God has already confirmed. I'm doing these live book studies out of love and passion and regard and respect and reverence for the Word of God. But internally, I want to confess to you that I don't feel that Christians have anything to prove. Those that are antithetical must disprove the notion of verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration. The fact of the matter is, because God said it is enough for me. When I was a few years younger, I often adopted this coin phrase, if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I've long since repented of that coin phrase. I no longer say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. The truth of the matter is, God said it, that settles it. That's the end of it. And I unashamedly put my faith, my hope, my trust, my confidence, my belief, I gained my assurances from the verbal, plenary, inerrant uh, word of God. If people choose not to believe it, then they choose not to believe it. But because one does not believe it is not in and of itself a credible indictment against the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of the Word of God. And if you listen to many of these quibblish arguments, alleged contradictions and alleged errors about which men and, and women are speaking, then if you research, dig, study, probe, uh, you, you, you'll find that we're studying another time, another people, another culture, um, other genres of writing that are vastly different from those that we are accustomed, uh, to which we are accustomed in the United States of America. And if you, if you study it in that paradigm and began to dig and probe and research, you start discovering things like some of these alleged contradictions. For instance, the one alleged in Matthew 27 that I treated on another video, one does not understand the use of composite reference. That was a very typical and common genre of, of reference and writing in that daytime and culture. And a composite reference is when one inspired writer 
takes the accounts of two different inspired writers and attributes it to one source. It's a composite reference. Um, you're not going to understand that. You're going to say the Bible contradicts itself. I know to go digging and researching and probing and studying and praying for, for God to bless me to see truth uh, in that I operate from the premise that no man alive has ever been able to disprove the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of the word of God. And I study scripture from that perspective with no fear of looking at extra biblical sources, no fear of even reading uh, sources and writers and scholars that are antithetical to Christology, the doctrine of the Messiah, which is fulfilled in Christ, or theology, which is a, a Christian theology, which is a study of the Christian systems of faith in the context in which I reference it. So I have no fear of doing that, and I would exhort you to have no fear. Ladies and gentlemen, study, study, study the Word of God, and know that there are no errors, contradictions, mistakes, and this notion of textual transmission and translation is not even a credible line of argumentation. Um, it is ludicrous. It is very humanistic. And I'm not surprised by it because it is from a postmodern, secular humanistic, agnostic, skeptic, atheistic punch, as it were, or Kool-Aid that they've drank. And if you listen to some of these alleged questions that are framed in questions, but really, if you tear back the layers, are really nothing more than a statement or an affirmation of unbelief, you will discover that in every instance, they must remove the divine component. You must, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I understand why it doesn't make sense to you. You're seeking to remove the divine component. How could Luke know this and know that and he wasn't there? Ma'am, sir, because of inspiration. Luke didn't need to be there. God revealed to him what he needed to know and what he needed to write. You've removed the divine component. In next week's uh, Facebook Live Part 3, uh, if God is willing... I would very much like to even speak to the notion of oral tradition. I've heard many individuals, many, many individuals assert the position that when you speak of oral tradition, you already negate inspiration. That is the most preposterous and ludicrous, ludicrous assertion that I've ever heard. And what it says to me as a student of the Bible is you have absolutely no understanding of the divine component involved in revelation inspiration for our illumination. You don't understand uh, what a small part oral tradition plays in inspiration. And before you speed past oral tradition, there are some other components involved in what we over simply referred to as oral tradition before we get to the product of what is recorded in the Bible. And I'm going to examine those components. I'm going to talk about those components, but I beseech of you to give a cursory understanding to the advancements that I've made today. I hope that the little bit that I've talked about, the inspirations 
the internal claims of the Bible, Old and New Testament, um, where the Bible uh, uh, asserts that it is the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of, of God. We've looked at just a couple of, there are far too many scriptures in context uh, to consider Second uh, Samuel 23, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 8. I, I, I read verses 13 and 14, but the context uh, is one that speaks explicitly about revelation and inspiration, uh, beginning about verse 8, coming on down to the end of the, uh, of the text in chapter 2. Uh, pay special attention to verses 13 and 14. I've given you a definitional uh, perspective of uh, fotidzu, which is translated our English word illumination or illuminate. Uh, and I've given it to you as God chose the word and revealed it by the Holy Spirit through the inspired writers. Paul taught illumination, Ephesians 1, 18 to 21. Luke taught illumination, Luke 24, 45. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, the Hebrew writer references the notion of illumination, just simply our understanding. That's why God in his divine economy did all of this for. And I've talked about the original autographs. I do plan to go back and spend a little more Time dotting a few I's and crossing a few T's relative to the plethora of manuscripts and talk about uh, the names of the different manuscripts, the dates of the different manuscripts, the difference between those that were written on papyrus, those that were written in codex form, those um, that... Um, uh, the, the, the many manuscripts that were written in various different languages, yet down through the tunnel of time, there is no contradiction in God's eternal scheme of redemption. The Bible was given to show man what he must do in order to be saved. That is called his plan or his scheme to redeem man. Well, I, that's, I'm going to turn you loose because I've taken more than enough of your time. Please Share these messages. Um, please like them and share them. Uh, I want to get this information out there. If it helps, to God be the glory. If you reject it, may God continue to bless you. Uh, but the truth, facts versus error, fiction are two vastly different things. These are long discussed topics. The world is filled with rebuttals, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of book. I gave you uh, six or eight uh, book references to read. And I, I realized that many have indicated that I was moving too fast. And so at some point, I'm going to try to figure out how to type these out and post them just as a suggestive read. I even gave you a suggested read for those who are heretical, those who are atheistic, those who are uh, antithetical to Christology and theology. So you can't answer the questions if you don't, you can't give the answers if you don't first understand the questions. And so in the Church of Christ, we're not afraid of the questions. These have long since been asked, long since been debunked, and we are cognizant of the fact that there are others who there are some who choose not to believe, which is your right. But it does not negate that these are truths, that these are facts, and they are truths and facts that have withstood the test of time. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, guard your faith.
and continue to put your faith, your hope, and your trust and your confidence in the Bible. It does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. May the God of eternal salvation bless you, and may he bless you real good.